coming up on Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. Consistency. Like, what I have found, no matter the situation, all those situations I just talked about, showing up and doing your best every day, like meeting yourself where you're at, you know, trying to be consistent about routines and habits and showing up is the only way I've been able to get all that done. I wrote the book 30 minutes at a time every day at my kitchen table early in the morning. That was the only way I could do it. Like only time I had. With everything, it feels like building the right routines and then just making it a habit to show up and, and do your best is is the only way that anything ever gets done. Hi, this is Caleb Gardner, founding partner of 18 Copies and author of No Point B. You can find me at calebgardner.com or Caleb Gardner pretty much anywhere around the web. This is my episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high-performing individuals tick, why they do what they do, and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons, and learnings. Today we spoke with Caleb Gardner, innovation strategist and change management expert. Caleb is a founding partner of 18 Coffees. We now know what the company name means, by the way. Listen out for that one. They are a management consulting firm and community for forward-thinking leaders building more diverse, ethical, inclusive, and effective organizations. There is a core focus around change management, strategy, and communications to help companies grow. Author of No Point B, Caleb helps leaders navigate change initiatives, unpacks disruption, and innovation. His background includes digital leadership, entrepreneurship, and social impact. And in fact, he ran the digital program for President Obama. We spoke about what it was like working alongside Barack Obama. We talk about imposter syndrome, and also a willingness to engage with projects outside his comfort zone. How he even wrote the book, what that method looked like. Caleb shares his thoughts on relationships with tech, what's coming, and change making. Innovation is a central part of this dialogue in relation to when someone is excelling, but having the wherewithal to consider innovation to stay ahead for that edge. Caleb Gardner, welcome to the show. Really looking forward to uh, learning a lot about your world. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Thanks, Caleb. Where are you calling in from? It's not in Dublin anyway. No, it's not. It's in <laughs> Chicago. So it's uh, early in the morning here. I'm drinking my uh, coffee. Nice Yeti mug as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're, we're there now. Coffee. We're, we're, we're on coffee, mid-afternoon coffee. Um, 18 coffees. What, what is that all about? <laughs> why, is that, why is that the name and what does that mean? Yeah, well, the name is actually just a combination of my business partner's favorite number and my favorite flavor of ice cream if you believe it or not, uh, when we were coming up with the name for the company, you know, there's there's all all sorts of options you have. You go something more creative, you do something that's more kind of standard or traditional, use our last names and something. Basically, we hated everything. <laughs> and finally, we just, you know, made, I was like, you know, the most important thing is that there's a website free. 
So we came up with something where there was a website free and the rest is history. And do you often have coffee ice cream as a team building every couple of days? Is that something yeah. that comes in? It's actually mandatory. We force <laughs> people to, to have it. I mean, the nice thing about it is, uh, you know, coffee is how you build trust with people. It's where you get energy from. You know, there's a lot of good parallels that we see to our uh, our consulting work. Yeah. So looking into your background a bit and looking at website, an innovation strategist, tell us what that means and what you try and do in that role. Yeah. And I think I, I take a pretty unique um, uh, approach to that versus other people who might use that kind of title. I mean, I like to say that I'm I'm trying to, our larger goal is 18 Coffees is to create a more equitable and inclusive economy. And so what innovation strategy means for me is I want to use the engines of innovation and creative thinking to come up with new ways of doing business, new products, new services that are more inclusive, more uh, sustainable, more, um, you know, uh, more building an economy that's going to last and and not relying on the old kind of exploitative things that we've done in the past. And so we we use our strategic thinking to really aim our clients in that direction. And, and a lot of it has to do with kind of creating new value at new frontiers. But a lot of it is um, more on the change management side, where we're helping them kind of bring the rest of the company along with this new way of working. When did this become something of interest to you, kind of change agency, innovation, diversity, inclusion, equity? It wasn't one specific catalyst. It was like a lot of specific catalysts all over a period of time. I mean, my background is really more in digital and technology, and especially in the communications realm, was, was part of helping companies really think about how to use the internet in a way that kind of helped them meet business goals back, you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago. And, you know, my perspective has always been shaped by it, how the internet shapes culture and what the internet means for how we should do business. And so that was kind of one part of trying to be a little bit more forward thinking. But I'd say along the way, you know, I was a history major in, in, in university and uh, have always taken this big kind of perspective about um, where the economy is going, where, where our country is going. And so um, got very interested in, in politics with uh, the Obama campaign being in my backyard here in Chicago and eventually went to work for President Obama for four years. And so picked up a lot of this kind of political sensitivity and and, you know, ways of making change in the political environment that I got you know very interested in and directly involved in for many years. And then, you know, just saw how those things were interacting, like saw how technology was pushing us to have more of a voice in, in what we wanted to buy and the products and services that we uh, uh, wanted to spend our money on. And it was empowering people to have more of a voice in their government in good ways and bad ways. Right. It's not necessarily all good, but there's this uh, there was this interesting intersection when we started the company of you know, business needs to change to adapt in on um, to disruption on multiple fronts. And so that's why we wanted to be both kind of at the forward uh, end of thinking about how do we do innovation in a way that is both inclusive of all those disruptive elements, but pushes disruption in a way that is in a better direction. Mm -hmm. And then how do we actually help these big bureaucratic uh, companies actually come along with that kind of innovative thinking? It's interesting because it seems like we naturally have reached a point as a wider population in the globe that we're looking at disruption a lot more. So decentralization with even cryptocurrency and trying to go with Web3 to move towards value that's shared. 
do you think that what or why do you think that's become a mainstay for Gen Z, for millennials, for this, this these new generations? And why is it becoming maybe a tide now at the moment? Well, what's fa- what's fascinating to me about Web3 is that it's like the next iteration of that thinking, because in the on the one hand, Web1 was supposed to democratize information yeah. and make information available to the entire world. And then Web2 was supposed to kind of connect the entire world and have and, and socialize and democratize like communication. And then now Web3 is, is trying to uh, democratize commerce and all of these other really interesting applications of Web3 technology. So I feel like, like every phase of that, it both has its promises and its potential pitfalls. And I think we've seen, especially with social media, for example, and Web2, how it did really amazing things and really terrible things. And I think the potential is there with Web3 um, to do both. Like we we can do these uh, really innovative um, things that are going to make the world better, or we could actually push inequality in even more extreme directions, depending on um, who has access to that kind of technology. I think what's interesting about the historical moment we're in, just to go back to being a history major again, um, is that Web3 and the the push toward this uh, more inclusive way to think about being a part of the internet is coming at the same time as borders are kind of closing globally and like there's a rise in nationalism and a, and a move away from globalization. And so I'm very interested in how those things are going to interact. Like, are we about to create a global class of people who have access to a more democratized web, but then there's a whole group of people who actually are shut off from the rest of the global economy. I think it's going to be fascinating to watch. would love to dig into innovation with you, Caleb, and, and then again, disruption. Uh, in terms of, say, environments, organizations, business and or sports that are excelling, so they're doing really well, they, they're winning on, the, on their mm-hmm. field of play and successful, but oftentimes you hear... You know, they probably need to innovate to stay ahead to, you know, they've won three years in a row. What's next? Because they need to still be the team that everyone's watching. You know, we've we've heard these stories about the All Blacks, right? What is it about innovation, disruptive thinking, that next step mentality that we can learn from from your world, maybe for those businesses or sports that are trying to stay ahead of the rest? Yeah, what's what's interesting about it, I think, is that we are there are certain truisms that remain true about how to do innovation well or how to how to you know think about the future, and that is m- remain flexible in your thinking, be adaptable to new data points, um, you know, uh, never rest on your assumptions about what works and what doesn't, even in the good times, even when things are going well, like you have to constantly be looking at what's coming in the future. I think those things are all have always been true. I think what's different about the moment we're in is that we actually can use technology to bring everyone along to that kind of adaptive thinking. And that's kind of the the uh, thing I've been preaching, which is that it's not enough to kind of have an R&D team over here or have your kind of skunk works team thinking of new new plays if you're in sports or new products if you're in the business world and and then to try to you know bring that back into the org and into you know your normal line of business we actually have to be able to bring everyone along to that new adaptive thinking and those new ways of doing business faster um instead of like isolating it from the rest of kind of the core competency of the business 
Um, and I think that there's there's an opportunity to do that because we've connected everyone, right? Because we have all of this um, technology to be able to persuade people that we're moving in a direction that is different from what they know, but is actually going to be better in X, Y, and Z ways. Um, so I'd say I'd say there's lots of management thinking out there about how to push the organization forward that is still applicable. The the thing that I always critique is the is the separation of that from your core business. I'm like, you have to be pushing on multiple horizons at once in order to not be disrupted. We might dig in a bit more there. Google years ago became famous for, well, not became famous for, but this aspect of their business became famous that they would give employees a certain amount of time allocated to do something unrelated to their work. And it's been said that Google AdSense and things like that developed from this a lot of time. Is that a practical tool? And what advice would you give to organizations, individuals, when they're trying to impart this knowledge and do it practically? Or how are they going to get that into the day-to-day? Yeah. I mean, you're talking about Google 20% time, which I wrote yeah. about in my book, which is, which is, I thought, a fascinating practice on an individual level to be able to create space for creative thinking. Um, I think that there's there's things you can do it like that on an individual level where you actually build in space in someone's um, week or month or whatever cadence makes sense to have them be able to think big picture. I think leadership should absolutely be doing that on an, on an individual level if they're not already creating space in your calendar to be able to get out of the weeds and think big picture is super important for me as a business leader, but for you know any of my clients that I would coach. But I think there's organizational capacity you can build to do that too. And one of the things that we push our clients to think about is building what we call change teams. And they can be called transformation teams. They can be called all kinds of things. I, I really, you know, I think I'm agnostic about the actual title, but the idea is that you create a team that is dedicated to getting out of the day-to-day and seeing disruptive elements approaching the business from multiple angles and seeing what transformative things are happening within the organization, like new technology or new efforts toward diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, things that are popping up in the organization that need to be integrated and thought of together instead of in separate work streams. Mm -hmm. So this team tends to be dedicated to looking at the future, trying to do some forecasting, but with some humility about where the business is now, and also trying to integrate different transformative elements that are happening within the organization. I think it's important to create capacity for teams to do that. What we usually do is try to build it into people's job descriptions. Like literally, if we're talking 20% time, you know, like what percentage of someone's job are you going to dedicate to their ability to do that? If you make it like a committee that's on top of everyone's work, then it's just going to be that. It's going to be something that's kind of an afterthought instead of something that's integral to the job and integral to the organization. And we find that if you build that kind of organizational capacity, um, you can you can see interesting opportunities that come up from the ground and not just down from leadership. Like leadership obviously has its own vision, its own way it's pushing the organization and the organization responds in kind to what the leadership is sponsoring. But sometimes they don't have visibility into the front line like people at the bottom do. So if you can create organizational capacity to think big picture more at that mid-level where you can both hear what leadership's priorities are and get feedback from the ground, it usually creates an interesting milieu of ideas there because you're you're creating that um, idea flow within the entire organization. Look over your right shoulder, and obviously you've just referenced it. What what's no point B? What is that? All? 
for those listening that aren't watching the video, Caleb's kindly just pointed to uh, his book that is really interesting. No point B. What is, what is that all about? What's the message you're trying to, to get out there? The idea behind No Point B is that change never stops coming. I mean, the the conceit of the title is we can't just go from point A to point B when we think about change. It's not something we take off a shelf and we, it's not a toolkit that we use to like manage this disruptive thing. And we're eventually going to be done with that disruptive thing. And then we can go to the next disruptive thing. The idea is that disruption is always coming. We have to make change a core competency of the organization. And not just change management from a uh, project uh, you know, standpoint in terms of getting something off the ground, helping people adapt to it, but also building it into the mindset of our people and helping them be more adaptive and more flexible in their thinking. We do these things when we get into you know, organizational environments where not only do we get stuck in cultural routines, you know, where we start saying things to each other like, oh, that could never happen here. Um, but we start getting into the mindset of what our jobs look like, what our team looks like, and we get stuck in these in these ruts of what's possible within our own teams or within our own jobs. And so my message of no point B is we have to be flexible and adaptable in our own thinking. We have to push ourselves to be thinking beyond the paradigms of what we assume to be true about our jobs and our communities and about society. And then we have to build organizational capacity to do that too. And part of what I go over in the book, I'm like still pointing to it. And I'm like, I'm part of what I go over there um, is, is what I was just talking about, about building change teams, building that like adaptive capacity within the organization to be able to be able to think beyond just what the organization produces every day to uh, what might be coming down the road. Very good. I think with your role previously with the Obama administration and looking into currently what we spoke about Web 2 as well, voices and everybody having a voice um, is something so important in diversity and, and in equity. If we think about the downsides of that and when organizations try and shield individuals in their companies um, from having a voice themselves, what do you think the upsides are to it, an organization who says, okay, we'll let Caleb run our our Twitter and he can give out the messages and he can interact with individuals <laughs> personally and we can see that over here in Europe we have a company called Ryanair which are flights mm -hmm. they'd be like JetBlue or Southwest in the US and they have very personable quite humorous tweets that they put out and it, it goes well because it aligns people with their core values of being a cheap no frills airline how do you, how important and how can companies or organizations embed that and use that approach I have flown Ryanair and I can tell oh. you that um, uh, that is very authentic to them being no frills. Very, very no frills. There, Caleb, <laughs> um, long time ago, I should say. Um, yeah, I think that it, to me, there's you have to think about your brand in terms of what's timeless and what's timely, right? Like what what about your is core to your company and your brand that's never going to change? And I think that Ryanair has done a good job of finding that about themselves and then applying what's timely to different mediums and messages as um, is applicable, right? And so Twitter, for example, is a, a medium that for better or for worse kind of demands immediacy and, and rewards authenticity. And I would say I would say it's not even rewarding authenticity, really, because some brands, if they were their authentic selves, would probably be pretty boring. You know, it rewards <laughs> it rewards charisma, right? It rewards fun. Yeah. And it rewards entertainment. 
And so um, Ryanair naturally has a a voice that can uh, be really great for that audience. I would say that there are brands in the U.S. like Southwest, um, just to keep an airline uh, example, um, that is very similar in terms of, um, you know, it has a lot of brand loyalty and is able to express that online in really creative ways. Um, there are some venues where that is not as a, appropriate, hence the timeliness, right? But mm. um, I think the the nice thing about not just Twitter, but kind of the entire internet is we've created these like micro cultures that if you can really get a sense of what that culture wants, like the culture on Twitter or the culture on Reddit or the culture on TikTok, um, you know, that that culture will really reward you for uh, being entertaining and what they perceive as authentic. Yeah, you can definitely win. <laughs> yeah. If, if, if engagement and eyeballs is your ultimate goal, you can win. <laughs> so, you know, sometimes <laughs> I would, I would debate about that, you know, needing to be your goal, but under the Obama administration and working alongside President Obama, what was that like for you, Caleb? And what maybe, where did it challenge you and, and what did you bring to it? And kind of what did you enjoy from it when you're reflecting and looking back on those years? What was it like? It was stressful, man. I was not <laughs> as uh, gray back then as I am now. Um, you know, when I'm worried about Josh Ernest getting asked about me at a, at a press briefing, the, the former press secretary. I mean, I, I, what I learned from my Obama years, besides for how to run a team at, you know, the highest kind of levels of of uh, engagement and and governance and with the, you know, riskiest possible outcomes in terms of like go- causing global catastrophe by <laughs> by phrasing something wrong um, is that people are willing to engage and and work hard and do really important things at all hours of the night when the mission is it, when the mission really matters, when they really believe in the work. Um, I have friends that are still engaged in the political uh, process today, you know, going from kind of cycle to cycle or going into political advocacy or into government who have endless amounts of stamina because they believe in the work. I could only do it for about four years, then I got <laughs> exhausted um, and, and, you know, wanted to spend more time with my kids. But these, these, People are are really dedicated, um, you know, citizens and and patriots and people that that really believe in the work that they're doing. And working alongside those people is inspiring because you just you learn so much from them and you uh, get inspired by their commitment. When you're speaking of being a leader and managing teams, looking into maybe 18 coffees, finding the right people is so important. Do you have a method or a technique or is there anything you've learned over the years about how you can identify who's going to be a fit, who's going to align with the work you want to do and find that meaning that you mentioned that keeps people up and churning in the late hours. Yeah, it's, I mean, I wouldn't say we found a silver bullet. I think that's a tough uh, line or a tough thing to find for any, especially small business like ours. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's especially tough when you start like adding in layers of hiring bureaucracy, like a big organization and you start bringing in recruiters and folks Certainly. from HR and lots of like, um, uh, you know, bodies between the actual hiring person and the act and the person being hired. I, I think that the best formula that we have found is um, a combination of casting a really wide net at the beginning, making sure we have found like pools of people that are diverse, that we can we can be assured that the people coming in at the top are are, you know, representative of the kinds of clients we serve and the communities we're a part of and, and as, as diverse as possible. Right. So that that's kind of the first part of the formula. Second part is we try to keep the hiring process itself as equitable as possible. And that means 
Um, even when people are referred in by other people, which we obviously love to get referrals, like any company does, we try to ask them the same questions. We try to, you know, make sure the hiring process itself is is as equitable as possible. And then finally, um, I like to one thing that, especially because we're in the consulting world, one thing I really like to do is um, see how people think. I think that's something that. Um, historically, you know, coming from consulting, coming from um, tech, there's a lot of a lot of uh, uh, people who can gain a lot of really great hard skills or are great writers or, you know, like there are things that you can really easily kind of gut check to do people have this. The harder thing is to see how people would handle really tough situations. Like where, how do you think on your feet? How do you how can you pull apart this problem? Like, how would you structure this problem in a way that makes sense where you could find a solution? Those are the kinds of things I really like to ask when we start whittling down candidates, because it it gets beyond just the, are you a great writer? Or even are you a great interviewer? Like some people are really great interviewers and gets to when you are faced with a really tough problem, how are you going to react? And how are you going to, how are you going to think? And are we going to be able to follow your thinking? Really loved the way you talked about the DNI piece, Caleb. And I think a lot of people listening can get a lot from that. In Ireland, we're 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 still not quite there, probably like mm. a lot of the world. But um, it's awareness, it's education, it's conversations like this. Would love to talk a little bit around tech and kind of your your personal relationship with tech, having very much worked in that space, and also then you know family and and then people in and around you, right? We've had people on the show that have spoken about, you know, digital minimalism or, or the use of tech for certain spaces that can really make all the difference, right? So just curious, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad with two kids. Uh, we use tech an awful lot. That really helps our business as well. So yeah, tech is integral to all of our lives, right? And, and I, I'm really influenced by, um, oh, what's her name? I write about her in my book. And I, of course, I can't recover, recall her name right now. But she she was a philosopher who wrote about how we are all really cyborgs. Like technology has been integral to what we've thought about humanity for for centuries. And when we use technology or, or we other technology as this thing that humans use instead of this thing that's integral to our lives, um, it's actually disingenuous. And so... I approach it from that standpoint, like technology is here to stay. It's going to keep evolving. It's going to keep changing what we believe about humanity and, and what we believe about how we live our lives. So it's more about how do we how do we create a healthy relationship with it than it is trying to get away from it or create separation from it. I think digital detoxes are important. I take them myself, but I also think it's important to recognize that we've been given a lot of power as individuals. Like I'm carrying around this amazing supercomputer in my pocket that ha gives me access to not only the world's information, but this amazing voice and platform where I can connect with literally, you know, anyone around the world right now. Mm. Um, and so to take that away, to actually consciously say, I don't want to do that anymore or to like disconnect. I think is actually an ethical decision and one that people shouldn't take lightly. Like we are giving up our power to make good just as much as we're giving up, you know, participating in something we might see as evil. So I think there's a there's a takeaway there that people should really consider for themselves. I write about it in the book about, you know, we need to be able to find ways to use our voice to, you know, do good. We have to find the context for ourselves about where we want to do that good. But we've been giving this given this power, and we need to see it as a responsibility as well to be able to you know use it to 
do good in the world. Yeah, it's an important point because the other day I was even considering when a child or a young teen, whatever age it's deemed appropriate, gets a phone, it's likely a partnership that's going to be around for another 50 years. Yeah. So you want to be able to have the keys in order to make that relationship as healthy as possible because it's going to be there for the long haul. That's right. So it's very important. I have a 13 year old. We very recently have introduced that. Um, and so we've had a long conversations about his relationship with the internet, trying to embed within him some digital media literacy so that mm-hmm. he can really be critical about what he's reading and seeing and, and, and hearing about on the internet. Um, we're also trying to create, you know, good relationships with screen time and, you know, all the like addiction that, that, that can come along with, like, it's, you got to start that early in terms of those conversations, because it can get to your point, really get unhealthy and create lifelong bad habits. I think what you said there though, is massively important that if, if parents of young families even listen to that, having understand, having that conversation with that 13 year old, that 14 year old, that young adolescent about healthy relationship, when to engage, what is screen time, how to look on the internet, because we've heard the stories, right? So I think even having that conversation from an education perspective could be so important. Yeah, there's there's something you can build on there as well, because even looking at psychology, when we try and educate young people not to to take on the role of you, you are your thoughts, to understand that you can understand you have a relationship with your thoughts doesn't necessarily mean it's the truth and everything you think isn't necessarily going to be who you are. It's the same with what you see on Twitter. It's not always the truth. You have to be able to understand in context. And exactly, as you said, think critically, not only about what's in front of you on your tech device, but what's going through your self-talk as well. So there's some interesting things, but I think yesterday you put up a tweet about tech and it's something that we have as well. So there's two Ah. here. Excellent. I yeah. got mine right. This isn't sponsored by Remarkable. But I know. I got mine right in front of me. That's great. I so love it, my Remarkable. It's it's awesome. It was interesting that we had a bit of resistance towards getting we were like, will it will it feel right? Will it will I be increasing my screen time? Am I gonna get addicted to something else? And we haven't well, found that. We found it very helpful. What's your experience? No, so yeah. If anything, I feel like it's gotten me away from um, you know, constant scrolling on my phone. Um my so I actually uh somebody bought it for me it was a gift so I and I'm very grateful for it because I would never have I I have an iPad I was like oh I don't really need this you know um but it my relationship with it has been completely different because I'm when I want to read things on my phone I send it there and then I can create like specific space and time to read things instead of just constantly scrolling on my phone um, I, it's replaced my meeting notes, my journal, my, like anything I want to do with writing. I mean, the writing experience, again, this is not sponsored. I love that we're talking about this. <laughs> the writing experience is just completely different than writing on any like iPad screen or anything. Right. It like feels so much closer to paper. Um, so I, I love it. I end up taking it with me everywhere. Yeah. So this people... episode has been brought to you by. <laughs> I know. So people Seriously, are... yeah. we should send it to them. So people who don't know, Remarkable is an e-journal with a great writing experience. Check them out. <laughs> <laughs> and hopefully someone's listening. Jeez. <laughs> um, we do like it. We use it for a podcast all the time for prep. Yeah. Makes Caleb... sense. Yeah. Taking notes as you go. And yeah. 100%. What's exciting at the moment? What's what's driving your curiosity? Obviously, 18 Coffees, some of the stuff you're doing, you obviously got your book. What's on the horizon for you? Oh, yeah. My book is definitely still very new. It's only been out for about a month, so mm-hmm. still talking about it and, and trying to 
you know, evangelize it and its ideas um, as much as I can. Um, that's that's most immediate. I think on the horizon, we're we're about to release a um, change makers toolkit uh, at 18 Coffees, which basically takes some of the practical tools we've used with clients and tries to boil it down and be more like self-service, <laughs> be more, be more like self-service where you can kind of take some of those tools and use them yourself within, within companies. Um, I'm doing, we're about to pick, do a lot within the ESG space. If you're familiar with the ESG space, we've been talking to clients about it. And for a long time, we think it's it's a really um, great forcing function for social good in the finance industry right now um, that's kind of changing the operations of companies, both from an environmental standpoint and a relationship with with their communities. So I think there's lots to do there. We're talking to some clients about, speaking of Web3, the application of things like EF, NFTs to carbon credits and, and mm. trying to use Web3 technology to force like carbon capture and storage. Um, so there's, there's lots on the horizon. That's really exciting. Give us an example of the change makers piece or do we have to wait? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I can give you, I can give you a couple examples. Like we've got tools that are, um, that are meant to be more strategy tools in there where we've got something called a solution tree where you kind of take a vision, try to break it down into specific outcomes you want to see, and then break it further down into what activities you need to do to, you know, re reach those outcomes. And then we've got things like, if you're familiar with the racy grid, you can use a racy grid to that to like actually break it down further into who's going to be responsible for each work stream. Um, we've got some fun, like brainstorming and facilitation exercises, like something we've done called tweets from the future, which is basically just trying to get into the mindset of like, stakeholders outside the organization and what they're saying about the organization now and in the future. Um, so it's, it's a great combination of like practical worksheets you can do as a group and exercises you can do that we found helpful um, and just helps you try to think through also like speaking of building a change team, like who should be part of those that team, um, you know, how you can actually create things like team charters or like uh, create expectations for that team. So I, I'm pretty excited about it because it's just it you know, not everyone can hire us to do actual consulting work. So this this is just a way for us to try to boil it down to for smaller organizations, for individuals that want some of these tools for, some, you know, to have something practical that they can use. What does success look like for you, Caleb? Like we're looking at that book and you're, that's definitely going to ask some really interesting questions of, of organizations and people into what they're doing, like, and how can we innovate and disrupt? And then obviously you've got 18 coffees. So and these other pieces that you've got coming out. Yeah, back to the question, kind of what what is success? How can you how can you feel you're you know you're doing what you want to be doing because you're giving out so much here at the moment? I think that my mission has always been to help people find agency to, you know, again, build that economy that we all want to be a part of. And so I I think if people can take the book and apply its ideas and find ways to be change makers in their organization, I'm happy we can find ways as a consulting firm to, you know, turn the the engines of economic progress and our and our clients towards something that's more sustainable and inclusive. That that makes me happy. But ultimately, you know, I, I've I've redefined success for myself in the last five years as I've you know taken this entrepreneurial journey to be more than just you know financial success or kind of accomplishments. It's taken me a long time because I'm kind of like, you know, it's like a typical entrepreneur, like a driver of like, what's next, what's next, kind of reaching the next milestones. 
but you know, also just trying to be with the family and be content in where I'm at. I feel like that is building in practices to help me feel more content in the moment as actually a, a driver of success for myself too. It's excellent. Just thinking to the book, writing a book, you know, head of digital strategist for a presidential campaign, a presidential administration. How do you find yourself stepping into these new realms, stepping outside the comfort zone? And how do you back yourself when you're going to do that? A lot of people would like to write a book, feel like they a country, but never take that first step. What is it that you, <laughs> that you do for yourself in order to get to start them little processes? You mean besides for being completely delusional about my ability to do it and just like yeah, leaving that leaving that, that aside. We'll park that one for the next. Time. <laughs> I mean, I do think that I have an uncanny ability to like push myself to do hard things and to like take the steps that just to look beyond things that feel scary and just push myself to do them anyway. You know, like something seems like a great opportunity, like joining an agency when I had no agency experience, joining a consulting firm when I had no consulting experience, joining a political campaign when I had no <laughs> po political experience, writing a book when I'd never written a book, you know, like there's just, I think that I always um, like can, again, it feels a little delusional, but like see the good in it, see the the good that I could do, silence that imposter syndrome voice in my head that says you shouldn't be doing this, which I do have. I just, you know, I it kind of am able to box it in and say like, oh, I'm going to figure it out. And then, you know, learn along the way and stay curious and, and eventually figure it out. All those things, Caleb, you've been high performing with regards to it all. And we just love that embracing and, and leaning into the challenge. Question for us, last one of the show, we ask everyone that comes on our show and, and Caleb Gardner to you. What does high performance mean? Mm, I love that. High performance to me, I think, means consistency. Like what I have found, no matter the situation, all those situations I just talked about, showing up and doing your best every day, like meeting yourself where you're at, you know, trying to be consistent about routines and habits and showing up is uh, the only way I've been able to get all that done. You know, like I wrote I wrote the book. 30 minutes at a time every day at my kitchen table early in the morning. That was the only way I could do it. Like only time I had. And so if, with everything, it feels like building the right routines and then just making it a habit to show up and, and do your best is, is the only way that anything ever gets done. Yeah. Caleb, thanks very much for your time today. We got loads from it and wishing you the very best. Everyone check out No Point B, check out 18 Coffees. Uh, Caleb, we got a lot. Wishing you Thank the very you best. Thank you so much. Thanks this has much. been super fun. Cheers, Caleb. Thanks, Minya. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, a story of high performance. This was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. The GOAT, Michael Jordan.